Welcome to Ways to Means, a personal finance podcast with Hannah and Susanna. We believe financial empowerment is a collective effort, and we learn best by sharing personal experiences with each other. Join us as we talk about all things money. I've studied people's emotional relationship to their finances for 10 years. I've talked to, I can't tell you how many people about it or how many advisors about their clients about it um, as part of my work. And then to live it and to know that like actual feeling of like crossing that that hurdle and just like all I did was click a button and it's but it is amazing like don't underestimate the power of how hard it is to make that leap but then once you do you're good to go. On today's episode we speak with Jess Keffler who's the head of a user experience research team at Vanguard. Vanguard is a registered investment advisor that's been around since 1975. The company is known for its four core principles. One, define clear goals. Two, invest with balance and diversification. Three, minimize cost. And four, stay disciplined over the long term. The founder of Vanguard, Jack Bogle, is also known for starting the first index fund, which is something we talk a lot about on the show. We talk with Jess about what it means to design for the user, how design can cue users to take certain actions, and how the corporate philosophy is embodied in the Vanguard website design, and ultimately the experience of the user. Jess also talks about how her professional experiences have informed how she manages her personal finances. Hey everyone, Um, I'm Jess Keffler. My background and PhD is in human-computer interaction, so quite literally as stated, the interaction of humans and computers is what I study um, and it's what I do for a living. So it's a very uh, rewarding experience to get to to think at that space for where we are as a society and how integrated digital components are into all aspects of our lives. I've been doing a form or another of user experience research for over 15 years. Started off in nonprofits, thinking about how digital experiences can help people learn. Um, so did a lot of work in museums and zoos and aquariums to think about how kids and families and um, young adults learn different types of concepts, you know, around climate change, for example, or, um, you know, pick any topic, something art related. You know, I worked across all those different spaces. And then over time, I took on my own practice and started to accumulate clients um, and ultimately ended up working for one of those clients specifically as a director of UX research. So really helping to build out a practice for UX research in a design studio. And um, that company was Intuitive Company at the time, is not, has since been acquired uh, by Ernst & Young and is now the EY Design Studio in Philadelphia. Still very good friends with all those people there. Um, and our client base really ran the gamut from, you know, finance to healthcare to pharma, um, nonprofit, government, you name it, we did it. And um, finance was a pretty big part of our portfolio. So that's where I first got kind of embedded into the world of user experience research for financial um, and investing companies. And so a lot of my early work in the finance space was around um, the advisor and the role that the advisor plays in people's personal finances, Um, everything from understanding the tools that they use to help provide guidance to people and help like literally rebalance portfolios and do some of that actual like moving and crunching of numbers to the tools they use to like have a human relationship to then the tools that might get in the way, the technology that might get in the way of the human relationship. And that's that's kind of an ongoing theme, I think, in both finance and healthcare and education, which is like, what's the right amount of technology to introduce and what's the what's the right amount of humanity that we want to keep in it so that we're sort of balancing those two 
sides of the equation for stuff that's really important to people and very personal and can be very nuanced and um, very, very deep. Right. So I think that's really interesting. Like what amount of tech can facilitate a relationship and what amount of tech can in inhibit and, and prohibit a relationship between humans. That's really interesting, especially when you're thinking about it as large a scale as you are at Vanguard, which is a major institution. So that's very cool. And that's your job to figure that out. And so that's my cool. job. Yeah. And so now I work in-house at Vanguard. So Vanguard is my first in-house role. Um, in-house, meaning I literally came inside of one of the financial companies that I used to do kind of external work for. Um, and it's, I've been here for about a year and a half now, and it's absolutely wonderful. I work in the client experience and digital space, um, which is, you know, supportive of the, the end client very specifically. So not not the 401k type of work. That's a different group. Um, we're not the international group. That's a different group. We're the group that does, you know, the IRAs, the things that, you know, beyond your 401k, you're looking to create as investment vehicles so that you can continue to achieve your goals um, for retirement and other goals that you might have near term or long term. So everything from, you know, onboarding into Vanguard and opening accounts to then investing your money to then managing your money to then potentially getting an advisor if that's your thing or having a robo advisor if that's your thing. Um, and then across all the channels, so mobile, um, chat bot, live chat, website, everything, you name it, that's, that's in the purview. And I have team members um, that do research with our end users, so our clients and potential clients across all those different spectrums. So I have a team of um, 40 plus people uh, that helps support that as part of the design process, making sure that the client's voice can be integrated into the design decisions we're making, as well as the product decisions we're making from sort of a roadmap standpoint. And what's most important to do now versus what do we have to wait on? Because you just can't do it all at once. So how does your team, how do you and your team find and interact with the users of these products? And um, you know, what can you tell us about the, the target audience as far as their characteristics, motivations, et cetera? Yeah. So the, the fun part about working in what's called retail. So that's, that's the group that I'm in the division that I'm in is that it's people like you and me and our parents. And like, if you, if you can think of a human, they are technically in that target audience. Right. <laughs> um, so anybody, you know, with just enough money to invest in something beyond a 401k would fall into the category of target audiences for us. And so that is a massively wide set of characteristics. So everything from, you know, your kind of, you know, 20 ish something person, you know, kind of maybe first stepping their toes into personal finance. So some of the stories that you all have told in other podcasts, that's, that's our audience, as well as, you know, the people ready to retire and retiring. So who are actually drawing down on that retirement and that nest egg that they've been working so hard to build over the years. Um, and this so is so super fascinating to me because I get that the internet is designed for everybody and like Google should be easily usable for any age user. But when I think about the very, very different needs of somebody who is 64 versus 24, I mean, that's why Robinhood exists, right? It's to cater to the 24 year olds. That's a really big bridge to build for you guys. It's a, it's a huge bridge. And then, you know, I, I, I love the Robin Hood example because then you start talking about, all right, so it's not just the different types of people, but then the different types of things you're trying to accomplish as a human. And what we consistently hear 
um, when people talk to us about, you know, why the why Vanguard, you know, it's, it's their nest egg. It's their, you know, we often hear the real money. This is where I put my real money, not my play money. That's for other things. But like Vanguard is where I put my real money. This is the money I'm not going to touch. Or, you know, this is the money that, you know, my, my, my parents, you know, bequeathed to me, or I inherited from somewhere else, right? This is my, I don't touch this <laughs> more or less. Um, so it's interesting to have kind of that somewhat niche um, opportunity space within the big giant vortex of personal finance. And just to even recognize how many, how people use different companies and services and tools to kind of hit on a lot of different aspects of your financial well-being, no different than you would for healthcare, right? You don't always go to the hospital. Sometimes you're going to a specialist. Sometimes you're doing preventative care, right? It's the same level of complexity and I think the same same amount of diversity that you need to account for. So um, can you tell us a little bit about your uh, user research and design research process and um, what you and your team have learned? Maybe, uh, you know, a few things you've learned about what people are looking for with the digital products specifically? Yes. So user research um, as part of the design process is something that is embedded from beginning to end. So very early when you might have big, giant, hairy questions like, what keeps people up at night about their finances? Like, what is the ultimate need we are meant to serve? To then, okay, now we know that we want to use this type of an account or create this type of an experience so people can address that concern that they have. And so how do we create a digital experience to allow them to support that need? Um, and so we'll talk to users early in like this big amorphous discovery phase and just like big open-ended interviews um, or ethnography to really understand that context, right? To sort of see people with their families or see people, you know, struggling or to see people excited, right? And really get that emotional component and really bake that into our thinking. And then as the designs are created, you know, kind of going back to different aspects of that population to see like, does this make sense? Does it actually address the need that we thought we were addressing? And can you use it? And does it make your life easier? Does it, does it actually help? Um, one thing that's really interesting about finance is there's, there's this nuance where it's not just about creating something that people can use, but creating something that people can use that aligns to the philosophy of the company, right? So Robinhood is a different investment philosophy than Charles Schwab, than Fidelity, than Vanguard. And so you might be like, why are there so many? And you know, why do you even need to talk to users? Everybody's already done this before. And it's because each company has a different philosophical standpoint that they're also trying to bring to the table. So it's that unique comp composition of what people need with what, what the, the specific company is trying to support them with that you then bring together in a digital experience so that users can embody it and enact on it easily. So I'm, I'm really curious about this. Like, can you tell us more about how, the, I don't know anything about the Vanguard philosophy. I mean, I know about index funds, we've talked about it on the show before, but can you talk about more about how the philosophy does guide the work that you guys do and how you implement it? Yeah, absolutely. So you can, you can find it on the, the public website um, if you're interested. It's actually, I find it very interesting. I work at Vanguard, so that's partly why, but it actually, I, I've never really thought much about it until I worked in-house to think like, oh yeah, each company kind of has its own unique spin on this thing called finance. And so at Vanguard, there's sort of four key components to it. So one is having goals, having realistic goals and knowing what they are and tracking to them. 
balance. So having balance um, and diversification in your portfolio. Uh, cost, keeping costs low, you know, something you all have talked about in other episodes of the podcast is, you know, why an ETF might make a lot of sense is because, you know, it can follow the index and you'll spend very limited amount of fees on it. And so that's, that's something that is very um, important at Vanguard. It's like Jack Bogle's like number one philosophical standpoint. And then discipline is the fourth pillar of the philosophy, which is staying the course, right? That's like his, his most famous book, I think. Um, and really just being patient and not reacting to the markets. And so when you, when you think about the type of digital experience you need to create to embody that philosophy, is completely different from, you know, the type of experience you might create for a Robin different Hood. product. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Discipline, discipline's important right now with the, the markets, uh, you know, unhappy lately. Yeah. It's hard. It's so hard. And so it's like, you know, do you, do you want to have a buy and sell button on every page or do you want to make it a little bit harder during <laughs> in some cases to do a thing that people may instinctively want to do. And, you know, that's, it, it can be a potentially unsexy way of thinking about design because everybody's like design, you know, it's flashy. We've got graffiti and confetti and all sorts of things, but this is really like, hey, you know what? Everything's fine. Maybe just sit and meditate for a little bit. The markets will turn, you know, um, it's just a very different way of thinking about experiential design. So yeah. basically every time I log into my online portal, I'm going to be thinking, what are they trying to get me to do? I never thought about that before because now I'm thinking to my own user experience and how you do kind of have to dig for that buy sell button. And I'm not even at Vanguard. So that's good to know. <laughs> and, that, yeah, and that's true of all design. That's that's categorically true of all design, right? Even a doorknob is designed a specific way to encourage you to engage with that door in a specific way, right? Um, so that's like the famous Don Norman um, example that people use to even explain user experience. Like, there are affordances of different features and functions that tell your brain to naturally do something or not, or make it harder to do something. Um, yeah. So. And there's always that tension, like even, even not in, um, you know, technology design, like you just said with the doorknob, but like in any sort of public programming, for instance, like, let's say, you know, a, a, a good example is there's most cities have 311 where you call in to say there's an issue here. The classic example is there's a pothole, please fill it. Um, or this road sucks, like when are you gonna repave it kind of thing. And you need to balance that with the actual, uh, you know, experienced uh, engineers in the transportation department of the city. Mm -hmm. They need to be able to have long-term plans but also respond to the feedback coming from constituents and it shouldn't be one or the other. Um, and I, I do think cities or companies or whatever, um, they fall somewhere along the continuum of what input or, or what, um, wh where they fall as far as what's driving their decision-making process. That's, that's interesting. Um, I wanted to ask you, what is a feature you've built in response to user feedback? But I'm also interested to know, you know, if you have an example of when you actually um, came up with a sort of compromise between user feedback and uh, Vanguard philosophy? I mean, I can't think of a feature that we haven't worked on in the last three years that didn't have client feedback as a part of it. Um, most of it's not live yet, so it's not something that I can point to publicly. Um, but in terms of, you know, understanding what keeps people up at night and then translating that to what do we do about it? 
Um, I can share a story from a study that we recently completed where a client who all anonymize and call Antonio um, was uh, telling us a story about how, you know, he, he has the money. He really wants to get started with a company like Vanguard. Like he's really interested. He doesn't know where to start. And, you know, a common thing that um, most financial websites do is ask you to fill out like a questionnaire. So they want you to fill out some, a series of information. Um, Very often, I think in all cases, these forms have terms that, you know, the average person doesn't understand their financial terms. And you have to then go, you know, look it up on Wikipedia or Investopedia if you're, if you're even that lucky. Um, Worst case scenario, you just guess and you put in any information you can think of just because you want to get the process going. Um, and so Antonio was telling us the story and he's like, and that's all well and good. Um, he's like, you know, I, I kind of get it. But the thing is like, the one thing that really keeps me up at night is that I have a three-year-old on the spectrum and at no point does your forum ask me that question. And it doesn't ask me what my goals are. And it doesn't tell me like what happens or what do I do if, you know, if I invest, if I open a 529 account, which is what I think your form would tell me I should probably do because I've told you I have a dependent who's three years old. Like, what if that particular dependent of mine who's on the spectrum, like, like traditional school isn't the path for him. And now I don't know if I'm making a terrible decision, if I should be putting my money elsewhere. And this is that moment where that like five person, five minute phone call would have been much more would give you that information and context that a form never will, right? And so kind of going back to that balance of digital and human, that that's kind of the space that we're always kind of playing in. Um, and, you know, obviously when you bring in the business perspective, there's a certain amount of phone calls you want to keep down because they cost a ton of money. And for Vanguard, because we're owned by our end investors, every extra cent we spend impacts the end investor. And so it creates this really interesting tension of, yes, wow, oh my gosh, Antonio's story, it's so obvious, like we need to provide a a space, we need to provide a way to have that phone call, while at the same time having this business tension of, we need to drive down phone calls because it it costs the company an incredible amount in operational costs. And so this is not unique to Vanguard, it's not unique to the financial industry, this is, I'd say, probably true of most industries but I think it really highlights the the point of like bringing in that user voice, that client voice, and then seeing how the services or products that you're creating might not be fully doing what they intend to do. And they might not really be supporting that need and connecting to that philosophy of like, yeah, this guy wants to have a goal. He wants to connect to it, but he doesn't know how. And we, we may not have actually hit the mark on getting in there. Yeah. Have you, um, has Vanguard or your team tried anything to sort of bridge that gap or meet that need or like balance those two priorities? What are you trying? Yeah, absolutely. So we do have, um, we have different advisor services. So we have a personal advisor service, which is sort of your all in, you know, you've got an advisor, they can hold your hand. And then we also have a digital advisor uh, service, um, which is the more digitized human voice um, in terms of how that might help you. Um, and you know, I'm not allowed to share details of what's in the works for exploring the space, um, Mm -hmm. within that, but you know, that's, that's why these services have even come to, to be, um, because people are looking for, there's a lot of people out there who just aren't that self-directed client, right? They need a little bit more. They need just a 
tiny bit more guidance and they're, you know, they might not have enough um, to start with for that full on advised experience. Um, and so a digital advisor might be a place to start where you get a little bit more help. It's, it's a robot, but it's a robot that's been built with some human intention um, and, go, and get to go from there. And then maybe as you, as you grow your wealth, you're able to then opt into some additional you know, human services or traditional services. I just wanted to, just to jump in here, just um, note that this, this is typically called a robo-advisor versus like a more traditional advisor relationship, right? Like if people are wondering why they haven't heard these terms, maybe, maybe they have heard that, you know, the robo advisor term. And then, and you, so you call, remind us what you call them at Vanguard, those two distinctions. So the, the services, if you like went to our website, you'd see digital advisor, which is the name of our robo advisor service, and then personal advisor services, which is that more traditional um, advisor experience that you just described, Hannah. I did, um, a trial of Noom, the like diet app, which I am not a big fan of dieting, but I just sort of wanted to try it out. And um, I will say that they have, they have a um, personalized assistant and it took me a long time to realize it was a robot. <laughs> I was really impressed, but it's kind Wait, of Wait, no, actually, Susanna, it's not a robot. I've done that too. It's a real person. They're just really bad at it. So they sound like robots. <laughs> No, mine was a robot. It does let you choose, but it's not clear that you're specifically choosing between a robot and a person the way it sounds like at Vanguard, it's very clear. And so that's a distinct choice that they're sort of like, they're not like admitting, they're sort of like, do you want a more hands-on or do you want like, I don't know, fewer touch, touch points throughout the week or something like that. I chose fewer touch points and that translated to a robot. Um, but it didn't tell me that it was going to be a robot. And so I thought I was talking to a person. And then I can't remember what it was that um, finally indicated that it was a robot. But you can do, you can start from the beginning with a real person if you choose that. But yeah, it, it, it wasn't clear. And so that's interesting because that's a, that's a, that's a choice that the company made to, to not be clear about it. And I mean, I don't really care. I just thought it was hilarious that it took me so long to realize because like good on them for building such a good robot. But um, but I'm, there could be someone who would, you know, be embarrassed and like uh, kind of miffed that that wasn't clear. So, and there's a so whole body of design ethics. That's a part of the equation too, when it comes to stuff like that and choosing, um, particularly around that topic, there's a lot of really fascinating, um, work and literature out there on, you know, how human should you make a robot so that it's personalized, but not people don't feel like they're being duped. And then how robotic do you make a human who might be supporting like a live chat channel or something else, right? It's, it's, it's fascinating where we are in society today to be answering these questions because the, the two elements are getting so much closer together. Well, I think this is a really good segue actually into the next question, um, but I want to tie it back into something that you were talking about earlier. So um, we want to know what, what barriers people experience when they're um, trying to feel more comfortable with their finances and what design, what role design plays in that. Um, but I'm thinking specifically to what you spoke about a few minutes ago about the analogy between financial health and, and physical health and wellness. And I'm thinking about the value of um, human assistance and the role and the relationship that comes in with that actual human interaction. Um, we haven't really robotized the medical industry yet. I mean, there are more and more in hospitals now, right? Um, but yeah, I was just wondering if you could tell us more about 
how people, how, how your design is helping people feel more comfortable managing their finances and maybe what role the human interaction and relationship plays in that? Yeah, it's a, it's a really great question. I mean, I think a barrier that comes up specifically with the audience um, that listens to this podcast is just the, like the inertia and like getting started, right? You've like, if you've already gotten to like vanguard.com, most of the time it's because you're like ready to do something um, and getting you over that hump of being ready to do a, do a thing and actually do the thing. That is like this massive chasm, right? That's just as true of like, you know, you wake up, you're like, I'm going to go to the gym today. I'm going, you've laid out your clothes. You're are totally like ready, but then like forcing yourself out the door is that like last step. Um, it's the same with finance. It's the same with health. And so there's a lot that needs to be done to help break down that just like psychological barrier, which is a largely emotional one, right? There's fear. Um, there's, there's just like this, this like anticipated pain of effort. You don't know how long something's going to take and, you know, will you don't want to feel stupid. So there's like confidence. There's all this stuff wrapped up into something as simple as like hitting the open an account button. Um, and so what research can do, what bringing in clients into the, pro- the feedback loop process can really help you understand like the psychology of people and where they are when they're getting to that part of your page, right? It's very easy to think super transactionally about it and like, okay, all we need to do is make this like a three-step process, give them a wizard, hit the go button. But before that process can be effective, we have to like create this space of trust and confidence in clients. And um, it's amazing how just even subtle changes to the tone of the language used on a site can really help like make people feel at ease. Um, You know, being able to bring in those sort of like suggestive moments of support and help. Like if you're, I'm sure you all have been on websites and experiences where if you've like paused for just long enough, something then shows up and says, Hey, do you need any help here? Um, so those types of design solutions can like be the thing that makes you like go, go past that moment of, of fear or trepidation. And then kind of that encouraging, like four more steps left, or here's what's next. So understanding that people are walking in with all these concerns and fears and trepidations can help you build into that process like at the right moment the type of support and encouragement that people might need to get to that finish line. How has your time working in the finance industry influenced your own financial literacy and how you approach your your own personal finances? Have you made any changes? Yeah, I think uh, this is where when Hannah and I met, this is like where our whole conversation started. Um, because I've been I believe working- the direct quote was, I work in finance and I'm terrified of personal finance. Me yes, too. Literally- be friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like I have truly been studying other people and how they navigate their finances for, you know, over a decade, all the while knowing in myself, I'm not doing this thing and, and having that, that exact same moment, that, that big rock barrier in front of me. Like, I know I need to do it. I know I need to do it this new year's, I'm going to like, I've made it a new year's resolution. I can't tell you how many times. Um, and I loved, I can't remember which episode it was where you all made the comment about, you know, we all know that the best time to start investing is like very, very early, but the second best time is right now. Um, and so that's sort of that moment you just need to like seize. And that is, finally coming in house to Vanguard is what made me be like, all right, now I'm going to do this. Like now I'm truly talking about this stuff 
every single day, I have to actually start doing it. Um, and so it was kind of that like moment where I was like, all right, I'm really going to actually try and do the things that I know I'm supposed to do. So one of the, like, I've always been a very good saver, so that's never been a problem for me, but doing anything with that money has been very terrifying for me um, from a, you know, long childhood and history of not really knowing anything about this world. And so automated investing is the smartest solution for someone like me, right? For somebody who's scared and doesn't know what I'm doing. I need like somebody to help set up all that stuff. And then like, just tell me automatically how I can do this, like auto build pay style. And I'll be fine. Cause that I'm never going to touch that money. I'm ignoring it entirely. I'm doing everything else I'm supposed to do. Um, and so what we actually like rolled out a new healthcare savings uh, account system with our health plans at Vanguard. And so you get an HSA and I didn't realize you could literally invest your HSA. So, wow. First of all, it's amazing. So I've Go look that up. HSAs, they're incredible. Yeah, no, I'm like such a proponent of HSAs. Um, and I actually, I feel like I almost got kicked off Slack for posting on our local Slack channel for Charlottesville and the personal finance channel saying, hey, who has an HSA they love? And like six people were like, who loves their HSA? And I was like, well, I don't like mine. I would like to love it. Excuse you. And I had the same <laughs> issue where I had put money in BB&T. And then I was like, I, I opened the account and I was like, okay, cool. What now? And they said, you're good. And I was like, no, 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 no. There's gotta be more. You, you can't just hold the money. Like, don't I get to invest it? And they're like, no. And I was like, okay, we need to start this process over. Like you need to be investing your HSA. It's, it's too good not to. Exactly. And so I finally, I finally took that leap and it was only, you know, it's only through like being around this information enough and finally being like, all right, I know, I know what I need to do. And what I thought was beautiful about our HSA plan is, you know, you're, you're setting up your account just like you would any other financial vehicle. And then you put your money in and then it, the ver- it's like, congratulations, you've done the thing. And then would you also, like it, at the exact moment when I need to hear it, it's asking me, would you like to continually contribute a certain amount of your paycheck and have it automatically invested for you? And I was like, wow, yes, I want that. And normally I'd be like, yes, I want that. But then like, how do I know how much? And I don't know what if I need more and all these questions would swirl in my brain. But also on the page was an information that said we can maintain a certain balance in your account at all times and never go, never dip below that. And so it was literally like they knew the peace of mind that I needed in order to be able to hit the yes button on the automatic investment program. So I was like, okay, yeah, I will automatically invest. And I never want to go lower than X because then I know I'll always have money in that account for anything that I need it for health related. Um, and so by being around this information, just like as, as a personal investor for so long, it finally got me to do the thing <laughs> that I needed to do and take my first personal, like self-directed action towards my finances. I've, I've since, you know, gotten an advisor and all that other stuff and mostly just hand it all over. Cause I know that I'm, I'm just too nervous to do it myself. Um, but that HSA experience was my first, like I did that myself. I'm so proud of you. That's amazing. I'm so happy to hear that Jess. It's such a great story. <laughs> and like, I love that that was like the HSA is the perfect place to start. It's not scary. It has a triple tax advantage. Like if any listeners are scared, like that's the place to start, like put your money in an index fund in an HSA, 
You can use it if you don't use it, which most people don't when they're younger, you can literally use it when you're older and you have higher health expenses and your money will have, you know, been duplicating through investing. So I love that your experience is like the teacher becoming the student, right? Where you have been directing UX for so long and then you actually got to experience it yourself. HSA for our listeners is a health savings account. I don't think we spelled that out. But um, from context clues, you might have gotten there. It's also just a nice um, kind of connection point where like financial health and health health come together in such an obvious way. I mean, I think I and many of the people on my team will say it until we're blue in our faces. Those two worlds are inextricably linked. You can't really separate your finance and your financial well-being from your health and your health well-being, um, particularly as you get older. And so really, I think, I just think the HSA is such a beautiful kind of marriage of those two worlds that gives me, gives me hope for our future, right? If, if we're starting to think about those things as a more integrated set of needs and um, interrelated constructs, then like the things that keep me up at night and the things that keep you all up at night can actually be solved, um, which is exciting. After you've taken that first step, everything else gets easier. And so I'm, I'm shocked. I'm, I've studied, like I said, I've studied people's emotional relationship to their finances for 10 years. I've talked to, I can't tell you how many people about it or how many advisors about their clients about it um, as part of my work. And then to live it and to know that like actual feeling of like crossing that, that hurdle and just like, all I did was click a button and it's, but it is amazing. Like don't underestimate the power of, um, how hard it is to, to like make that leap. But then once you do, you're good to go. So really truly, like if you can start small anywhere, it just makes it that much easier as you go along. And so if I could go talk to past Jess and let her know, like, Hey, by the way, if only you had, I definitely would. So it's something that at least, you know, I can share with, you know, my daughter and as she gets older, something to to make a little bit easier for her to think about and just talk about at a younger age than I think most of our, our generations had the energy for. Yeah. Well, let's I also think about like what you do, Jess, makes um, this experience so much more unveiled and so much more accessible to people because you can do it from the privacy of your computer. You don't have to go to the bank. You don't have to go sit down and talk to an advisor. Like you can do it all without feeling uh, maybe self-conscious because you're not doing it in person. You're not doing it in public. And so maybe what you're doing is actually making investing and saving much more accessible to people. Um, and I think that's really exciting that you're actually facilitating that. Yeah. I mean, and that's the hope. And I, what I love about the structure of Vanguard being like, we are owned by our clients because our clients own our funds and we're owned by our funds creates this like beautiful cycle of, you know, everything we do, if it doesn't benefit the end investor in like a true way, ultimately costs them money, which then costs us money. And so from a, the business interest and the client interests are aligned and it, I just feel so lucky to get to like do that through a digital product and experience um, every day. It's really neat. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Ways to Means with Hannah and Susanna. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon. 